time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Tommy Caldwell is truly one of the greatest rock climbers of all time. He is also a family man, business owner, and friend of the show. Today we present a recording of a live chat broadcast with Tommy from March 24th, in which current patrons could listen in and ask questions. If you want in on future events like this and other great bonus content, or maybe you just want to support the show because you care, go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. My uh, Jen, Jen wants to know what she needs to do to get on the uh, Font and Blue invite family list for next year. If you guys are going, dude, it is so fun. I, I mean, you just got to come. You just got to book a house and come. I mean, there is there's no French people in Font and Blue. Actually, it's just <laughs> Americans. <laughs> like, I bet there's. I mean, of the people that we know that we kind of like communicate with and see on a day-to-day basis, I bet it's like up to like 10 or 15 families here right now. Nice. And when we all get together, it's like you show up in a crew like that with like 10 children all running around with like sharp sticks in their hands. And you definitely don't see any French people after that. Everybody else just like leaves and disperses <laughs> and you get all done to yourself. Lord of the flies. It's so Lord of the flies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Fitz and Ingrid keep getting hit by flying pine cones in ways they don't like. It's been really cool. good though. Tommy, are you um, renting a house just with your family or is it like the whole crew in one big house? We got us, the Honolds and Sandy Russell and Scott Bennett all in one oh, house. Nice. Yeah, it's nice. perfect. So good. It's been like very ideal, idyllic. Like we're all such good friends and like sometimes I can go south, right? Like if you put a whole bunch of families in one house, yeah, yeah. it can be kind of grim, but it's working out really well. So that's awesome. Yeah. How long are you guys there for? Uh, we're here for like two more weeks. Becca's been here for a month. I've been here for like a week or no, Becca's been here. I'm sorry. Becca's been here for two weeks. I've been here with the kids for a week. She came early. I've been here with the kids for a week, and then I think we're staying until either the second of April or the eighth. We we might go south for the last week and go sport climbing a little bit. Nice. Although I I didn't think I was gonna even be able to boulder here because I'm I still have a fragile Achilles tendon, so I was like not thinking it was gonna work. But I just find low problems and get good spots and get Honold to grab my ass a little more vigorously, and it all works <laughs> out. Chris read your book last night and um I I watched your uh, TED talk this morning, which I don't think I've oh, ever gosh. seen before. Oh wow. Um, so that was we're all caught up on on all things Tommy right now. Yeah, I actually had only ever read parts of the book in preparation, like for the last time we talked. Never cover yeah. to cover. And I I I binged it last night, cover to cover in one sitting. Um, good work. Yeah. Is my Don nice. Wall. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so I don't want to reference, I don't want to like go too hard because it's, you know, it's like it's been out for a while, but I do have some, I do have some clarifying questions if we get yeah, to it. 
I don't know if my uh, my like mental universe in the climbing world is so focused on you guys, but I feel like I basically get all my climbing media from the two of you in one way or another. <laughs> and you still like climbing. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you seem like you're being lazy. I mean, you're, you, between everything you all have going on, it's a, it's a fair amount, you know? Yeah, Thanks, true. Tommy. But yeah, we appreciate that. I, we're going to put, that's going to be on, uh, that's going to be on the, uh, the, our next, whatever promotional thing. It's much, you know, yeah, that was a much Call kinder comment than what, from us. It was a much kinder comment than what Honold gave us, which is that the quality bar is like barely. Yeah, we have no quality control. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I love doing this. You guys have like no quality control. <laughs> it's like, anyway, he backed off on that a little bit. What he meant. I mean, I feel like that's actually how Honold rolls too. Like for the most of his life, it's just like as, as little effort as possible to get like the most productivity out of it. <laughs> definitely doesn't stress the small things kind of like you guys um yeah so i i put in our our note out to our patrons that we would to log on at one and we'd probably get going around 105 but we can we can start right at one too and people can straggle on in as they I feel wish. like this is all it is like we've already <laughs> If yeah, anybody wants starting. more than what we're doing right now, they're going to be <laughs> kind of disappointed. <laughs> like, Lights, the shit. camera, <laughs> and action. let's just keep talking about people who aren't here. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing. We're not supposed to be recording yet, so we can't talk about anything cool. Right, which it's true. Is slightly awkward. <laughs> do you have any how do you start a Tommy? TED Talk, Tommy? Yeah. How do you start, how do you start a TED Talk? No idea. Yeah, give us your best five minutes. Go. <laughs> can you still do that from memory i know you have to like memorize those things don't you i mean like you can't there's like, like there's very like i did one one time and oh yeah you said you watched it um mine i did mostly memorize i mean you get you get like a monitor mm-hmm. but um, like the way that I, I i did one for this thing called tedx kansas city it's like the biggest tedx conference in the world and there's six thousand people watching it wow. which is insane it's huge and like live 6,000 people watch in this giant, it's the Kansas city opera house. And they, so they train their speakers a fair amount. And they said that I basically needed to rehearse it through the Valley of self-consciousness is the term they used. And so you need to rehearse it so much that you no longer sound like a robot. It honestly felt like the kind of thing you should take acting classes or something for. I only, I only like barely, I still sound, I mean, I still did pretty, pretty terrible, honestly, but, uh, it was an interesting experience. So th- that's prepared you for this moment today yeah. of uh, doing a live <laughs> run out recording yeah, for with sure. your old friends here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I f- suddenly feel like I'm in the valley of self-consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> I live there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. It's one o'clock. Do you uh do you, like do you box locker? Do you just have that thing hanging to like get out? Or do you were you a boxer ever? No, actually, I I I've I've threatened to become a boxer. Like from a fitness standpoint, I just I have a hard time like doing any sort of fitness thing besides going to the climbing gym. And I'm I'm always thinking like I should do something else. And so I I I kind of feel like I should box. I also think it would be good for my mind. 
because I'm not very good at like fast things. Mm-hmm. Um, climbing is super slow, you know. So like I have to concentrate to ski, and you know my mind wanders all the time, even like doing stuff like that. And so I thought it'd be good. So anyway, I I I don't know. I talked about it enough that I got that for Christmas last year. Um, <laughs> and so okay, and actually I just filled it up today because it had it had turned into sort of a little sad like soft scrotum hanging there um (laughs) and i hadn't been using it and so i just actually filled it up today and what i'm gonna do now and what i was doing before and i fell off is like when i have the urge to like scroll on my phone i'm gonna instead come down here and buy and and do the speed bag for a little while just like as a as an impetus to stop just like sitting there like a dead person scrolling with my thumb so that's going to be my my thing I decided is just to be like intervention, scrolling intervention will be like, I'm going to go run the speed bag. But I got pretty good at it. And then it's been a few months. Um, so I got to get my skills back. And then maybe I'll get excited and take a boxing class. But I don't want anyone to hit me. <laughs> yeah. I just kind of want to do like the drills. I don't really want to spar with anybody. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll get talked into it. But oh, yeah, that sounds brutal. And I got some tips uh, from from Kelly, yeah, on how to ru- run the speed bag. So, does he want you to spar? Does he does he encourage you to actually have somebody hit you? Not yet, but <laughs> I, I think if I'll get into it. Maybe he will. I don't know what what when was the last time he punched somebody? You think? I don't know. One time in my living room, him and Adam Stack, you know, they started sparring. It was amazing, right. actually, to see. Adam Stack just get taken down by Kelly like momentarily. Momentarily, I was like, "Man, this guy's like a trained killer," you know. Holy. Adam's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. I'd love to see. I, you know, I can see it under the surface with Kelly, like because he's just such. You know, he's like this guy. Oh man, this guy, and like <laughs> I can, but I, I'd love to see him just like transform because i know it's there you know like he pulls his stance out and he's like ready to go well it's funny because adam kind of spars with everybody you know it started with his brother brother john back in the day and like i mean he always just like he's just like kind of a rough like physical guy a little bit less nowadays like one time he gave me like he came up behind me and grabbed my nipples and lifted me up by them and i actually got like a hematoma in one side and so and so he does that to kelly and it's just like game over immediately (laughs) kelly just turns it on and you're like wow my god that's amazing i was gonna say these people have shown up for (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah nipple hematoma (laughs) it was was funny it was like when i was first was when i first met becca i didn't remember that i had been lifted by my nipples and I, but I had this weird lump and I, and she was a nurse, you know? And I was like, and I, we weren't quite dating yet, but we were pretty interested in each other. And one time I like, you know, I took off my Feeling shirt. Each other's like, nipples. Will you, yeah. Will you feel this thing? And like, tell me what's wrong. And she's like poking at my nipple. <laughs> it was, it was like, you know, mildly erotic. It probably helped us get together in the, in the long run. How to pick up a nurse by Tommy Caldwell. Will you feel <laughs> this thing and tell me what's going on? <laughs> I can thank Adam Stack for that. Yeah. <laughs> all right i think i think we're rolling right now um thanks for everyone for joining um if you've got a question for tommy you can use the q a function and just an- ask your question it looks like we've already got one there um just keep those going throughout the session and then we'll we'll kind of use that list of questions to just 
bring people up onto the screen and you can talk to Tommy and, and ask your question in person. So just use that Q and a, uh, feature in zoom and, and ask away if, if something, uh, strikes your fancy during our conversation, or um, us, if, you know, if you don't find Tommy Caldwell that interesting or us, yeah, you can talk yeah. to us too. <laughs> um, we are here with Tommy Caldwell, who needs no introduction because he's the uh, greatest rock climber of all time, um, which is a, a, something that you use to refer to yourself constantly. Is that right, Tommy? <laughs> Especially when I'm around Alex Donald, which I am now, because you can see <laughs> me a little flustered by that. You just constantly remind him of who's the best. <laughs> Give him nipple right. hematomas as he's... Uh, <laughs> squealing underneath your cruel thumb um no um i mean i was just you know as we were preparing for this i was just kind of looking back through all of the shit you've done over the years and um you know chris reread your book last night and i watched your ted talk this morning and uh you've got quite a career in climbing um you know all of these free routes on el cap um you know it's hardest sport climbs in america uh for a long time um, so you're good at everything in climbing, but what is your Achilles heel? <laughs> my Achilles heel is my Achilles heel. <laughs> Turns out actually, yes, I know. So you people tell people who don't know, uh, what you've kind of been dealing with the last few months and you can catch us up on, on your sad story about your couple of years about your, your Achilles tendon and what you've, what you've been going through. Yeah, you guys are both wrong on the timing. It's about it's about just over a year now. Okay. Um so I yeah, I, I was I was trying I was climbing on Magic Line, you know, the famous Ron Calc route in Yosemite last February and I took a you know like relatively routine fall, not something that seemed extraordinary, but the way I felt I kind of like popped straight out from the wall. And there's and it slabs out slightly. The bottom ten, like ten feet of the root is a little bit of a slab, so I hit on a lower angle of this section of the wall than what I fell off of, and so I swung in kind of hard, and it just it forced my toe up extra hard, and and I felt a little pop at first. I thought it was like my ankle cracking or something. It didn't even hurt that bad, but turns out I had completely ruptured my Achilles tendon, um, and so. I got surgery like two days later and, um, you know, I, I, and the more I learned about it, like Achilles tendons are one of the hardest things to heal. Like they tend to really take people out. Um, and sometimes their career ending, like I've, I've, I've run into a few football players and people that have completely had to stop their careers because of Achilles tendons and injuries. So it kind of progressive, like at first I was like, Oh, this is not that big of a deal. Climbers get injured. But then started to learn about, it. I was like, this maybe is a little bit more of a big deal than I thought. And then five weeks in, I ruptured it again because I had taken my orthopedic boot and put climbing shoe rubber on it. I had convinced myself that it was like, I was completely protected by the orthopedic boot. Um, and then I was, training myself to climb in crampons because it felt like I was climbing in crampons. So I was actually like climbing like five thirteens and stuff in my orthopedic boot with climbing shoe rubber on it. But that led to a bad place. So um, anybody who ruptures their Achilles, don't do that. And then, uh, and then I went about four, four or five months after that, that time I didn't do surgery. That time we just decided to let it heal. And I went like four or five months after that and was really, really close to having it healed. And I was at PT 
jumping around on one foot. I was kind of in advanced PT at that point. They thought I was mostly healed. It was strong. I was doing one legged heel rises and it catastrophically blew that time, like big time, like popped really loudly. Um, certainly a low point. I kind of like teared up, you know, doesn't happen to me that much, but it was like really kind of <laughs> devastating in the moment. And then um, I don't, tear up unless i'm on stage being interviewed by chris calouse by the way you've seen that happen. <laughs> uh and then uh and then i did like a, and then the, we decided to do a pretty robust surgery where they put in a bit of a cadaver part and they sewed everything back together they put bolts in my heel they kind of rebuilt the whole achilles and then it like separated again a little bit except not the cadaver part. The cadaver part stayed in there just fine, but the Achilles where they, that like came apart again. And so um, I've just had to keep it really careful, be really careful. And just two weeks ago, I did a, a stem cell treatment where they hammered a tube into my hip bone and stuck this long thing in there. It was really creepy and extracted like about five or six ounces of bone marrow. And then they spin it, spin out the, the stem cells and inject them into my Achilles. And the deal with that is um, bone uh, like stem cells kind of take on the properties of the tissue around them. And so that's basically supposed to fill in that gap. And it seems good right now. Like right now it feels really good. Actually, my Achilles feels about, I don't know, three times the size of what it's supposed to, but it's not swelling. It's just like scar tissue and all the ruptures and everything's been getting really big and it feels solid and it feels strong. Um, I'm still being careful until I get one more MRI, but I'm like, after this whole saga, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm like, I feel like I've got like a 15 mil rope in my leg as opposed to like a, you know, six mil rope like I used to have. And so hopefully that'll just the girth of it will create the strength in the long run. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I was like a small role or, or I ran into you in Lander last year and, and, you know, you were like, Hey, and I was like, oh, how's your tendon? And you like jumped up and down. You're like, I'm feeling pretty good. And you literally like, we're jumping up and down. And then I think it was just days later that, that the PT thing happened. Um, I felt yeah. really bad for you, man. I was just like, Oh, that's, that's, that's a drag, but you know, I did, as alluded to um read your book uh, cover to cover last night um in one sitting a push if you will um a dawn wall push type thing where i sat on the couch for like six hours and um you know i thought about your tenant and it's just like man this guy's prepared to like deal with these sorts of of things like you know i mean that book is a lot about <clears throat> you you know uh, the name says it all pushing through some of these things. And so I was just kind of hoping like, well, this probably seems pretty mellow compared to, uh, you know, what this guy's gone through in his life. Um, how, I mean, tell us a little bit about like the recovery mentality and, and overcoming those, those tears. Um, and by the way, you cry more than you think I, uh, you know, based on your book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's maybe true. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So the, the recovery has been really interesting. Like my morale throughout has stayed really high, which I've been surprised at. Like if I did this when I was 22 years old, I think I would have been pretty devastated. But at this point in life, there's just so many other awesome things going on in my life that I feel like in some ways when I can't climb, I like, I feel like I can 
take that energy and that excitement and apply it to other things and do better at those things. Cause I feel like I never have a, the capacity to like be a good father, be a good climber, be a good activist, be a good husband. Like that's, that's just always too much. So if I kind of take something off the table, um, at least that was my thinking at the beginning, I can kind of put that energy into the other things and it seemed to work. So I didn't climb much at all for like the first six months of my injury. And, um, and I was totally, I was totally fine with it weirdly. Um, but then when I re-ruptured in the hospital, I was like, man, I can't go like a year without climbing. Like maybe I'll never be able to come back. <laughs> and so I actually listened to a different podcast with, um, with somebody who what? had, um, <laughs> happens occasionally, um, with somebody that had, um, yeah, I don't know, know that a few people have done this that had like broken their ankle or something and got wicked strong hangboarding and campusing and stuff like that and I was like I'm gonna try this I'm gonna use this to actually get scientific about getting strong fingers because I've never really been that scientific I've, I mean a little bit I get that on the dawn wall at times I I you know I pulled out a stopwatch and I did actual hangboard routines but I never did that for extended periods of time and studied up on that so I was like I'm gonna take the opportunity to do that and so the last three or four months I've, I've kind of been on like on a strict hangboard routine and then when I felt like I could climb on I got, I've got a kilter board so I, and when I felt like I could climb on that I started climbing on that and I was like maybe this is going to be an opportunity to actually get better in those kind of training ways than I've ever been at age 44 now I was like that would be pretty cool so I've been trying I don't know if I've been 100% successful but I do feel stronger in certain ways than I ever have but I didn't rock climb basically at all for over a year and so this trip is really my first time getting out on real rock and unfortunately i didn't just crush 514 or, or like v14 first day but um it's taking a little little adjustment to get back into it but i'm feeling pretty good yeah so uh listeners who don't know you're in fontainebleau fontainebleau uh with um, <laughs> a big group of families right now um including your partner alex honold um who you've been on many adventures with but I've, I've, I'm kind of curious to ask you a little bit about your relationship with Alex because um, you guys seem obviously like good friends and trust each other and so forth and have similar objectives and interests, but there also seems to be a little bit of a competitive streak that you guys have around uh, one-upping each other. I don't know if it's accurate to say that, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about your friendship with Alex. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say he's in some ways my best friend these days i mean i i guess i could say that. i mean we don't chat on a daily basis we're not those kind of friends but we get together probably three or four times a year um for like a month or more these days and especially now that alex has a little baby um we can join forces for the family scene which has actually made us way closer it used to be we only got together to send like that was the only time we really saw each other and it was super fun but we didn't we didn't hang out other than that. I mean, we'd go to Argentina for a month and like send the Fitch Traverse and spend out for a whole and, and hang out for a whole month. But now that we all have families and our wives are really close, like we, we end up spending tons of time together and um, it's awesome. I mean, uh, the competitive thing, I'm not sure. Like he's just so much better <laughs> than me in every way these days that it's hard to be competitive like one thing i really enjoy about alex is he's he's like on the program he's so intentional and on the program so much that um it makes me get on the program and he's so 
not not just with climbing but just with life in general he's always like he's just hard driving and it's inspiring in a way that makes me just become a little bit more um so yeah and then our yeah like i said our, our wives are great friends our kids you know my daughter ingrid loves little june more than anything in the world um which is lovely and yeah a lot of things kind of bring us close together we're planning big trips together and yeah it's great one of the thing that's that's part of your i don't know almost mythology um and i think it once your book came out it, it we realized that a little bit of it was mythology was your upbringing um and particularly your relationship with your dad and how you know you guys were out in the mountains from such an early age and um you know now that you're uh, quite a few years ahead of alex in raising a kid um maybe give us a little idea of of your sort of parenting style in terms of like you were turned into this sort of outdoor machine and it's you know those parts of it have benefited you greatly over the years um but where, where what kind of like philosophy do you have around raising your kids raising them in the outdoors trying to find out you know, what they want to do versus what you want them to do and all that sort of stuff you know it may, maybe just the idea of having alex as a new dad around has made you contemplate yourself as a as a father especially to your older boy fit I mean, as you guys know, once you're a parent, you're contemplating that stuff constantly. You're like, you have a certain amount of angst always in in the back of your head. Like, am I going to ruin this kid? What can I do to, <laughs> to like make this all work out? Luckily, with both my kids, they're a little bit older now and I've, I'm less stressed about actually wrecking them. They seem like they're turning into wonderful human beings, at least for now. That might change in, you know, a few years when they're teenagers. Puberty. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit afraid of that. Um, but. I think a ton about the way I was raised and my dad took me on crazy adventures. And I think I'm more in awe of that now than I would be if I wasn't a parent. Um, like he did pretty dangerous stuff with me. He, he like convinced me, I think his superpower actually was convincing me that like really painful things were, were super fun and cool. Like he, you know, we'd go and, you know, hike long speak, be like out in the mountains for like 20 hours at a time when I was like six years old. And, I loved it. <laughs> and he does that with other people too. You know, he's a, he's a school teacher. He's a guide of various things. And he just like has this ability to make people think that suffering and like type two fun is what's going to like make you into the best possible human. And that's like firmly in their head. And I, I just like, I can't figure out how to do that with my kids. In fact, I think I take the opposite approach. Like I'm, I'm very, maybe partially because I was raised by my dad in that way. I'm, I'm very much like with, I'm with Fitz and Ingrid. I'm like, I want them to discover who they are outside of me. Like, I don't want to force them to climb. I really encourage them in ways that they come up with rather than what I come up with. Um, but what's interesting is Becca She's not like that at all. She's more like my dad. Like, you know, I'll, I'll be like, oh, you know, my kids will be, you know, not want to go hiking or climbing. And I'll be like, oh, no, we don't have to today. Or you don't have to today. And she'll come up and be like, you guys are cold balls. You're going to fucking climb. You know, like she's <laughs> kind of hardcore. About it. <laughs> and so in my mind, I'm like, I hope this is going to be a good balance in the end to have one parent kind of in each role. Um, 
we'll see. It does create a little bit of friction at times because I think Becca kind of looks at me as a bit of a pushover with my kids. And I look at her as like maybe a little bit too hardcore in a way that's going to make them hate it. Um, we'll see. Yeah, there there is this really interesting tension between um, what you went through as a kid and then how you know, how you put that in relation into your parenting style and approach. And, um, in some, we always joke, uh, Jen and I about how our kids are going to end up doing the opposite of whatever way we raise them. So if we make them outdoorsy, they're going to be, you know, city socialites or whatever, or like, you know, gravitate towards some kind of opposite upbringing that they, that they were experienced as kids. And, but who knows? I mean, you never know exactly how kids are going to turn out. And that's sort of the mystery of the, of parenting is that it's, it's really just this, you give it your best shot and you hope for the best, but you have no, you very quickly realize you have no control over what it is that you're doing or the type of human you're kind of creating. Um, but I wanted to dwell on that idea that about your father, you use that word elective hardships in your Ted talk of, of, of about his approach to kind of instilling you with these, uh, this sense of toughness, the sense that, um, you know, suffering can be fun, um, that it doesn't always have to be like fun to be fun. Um, and, and in your Ted talk, you kind of really, uh, made a connection between that and some of the things that you experienced in Kyrgyzstan, um, you know, cutting off your finger, all these kind of big milestone events in your life that have shaped you and, and turned you into who you are. Um, and all of those, the, those elective hardships of your youth kind of seemed salient in hindsight, um, as, or as formative to helping you through those things. Um, but with Kyrgyzstan, I was kind of curious to talk about the, the, this idea of PTSD. Um, some of the folks on your trip, I think have weathered that, PTSD aspect better than others. And and you seem to, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you struggled with it in ways I don't know, but you seemed like you overcame Kyrgyzstan in a way that was um, more healthy or just allowed you to just move on from it quicker. I'm, I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on, on why that is the case, if it's, if it is indeed the case and um, just your thoughts about that aspect of PTSD with that event in your life yeah i mean i think that's fair to say that i believe that i weathered it pretty well like i don't know the nuances of ptsd i've probably experienced it in some way or another that i'm not even aware of and maybe it's better to ask that question sometimes to the people that are close to me to see if they think i'm really fucked up (laughs) who knows um but generally um I, yeah, I kind of believe, and this is the way that I've, that I, that I, that I've made myself think about it is that having this mentality of the hard things in life are what bring out your best has served me really well, especially through Kyrgyzstan, because I came out of Kyrgyzstan. I mean, in Kyrgyzstan, it was such a, like, while we were there, while we were kidnapped, it was such a crazy experience that, um, that it's still like to this day, it's like looking through a mirror or something. And and while I was in Kyrgyzstan, you know, you're just trying to hang on for your life. But right afterwards, I was like, how is this going to affect me? But pretty close, pretty soon I did get to the place where I, I just felt like lucky to be alive and and like I had to live every day, every moment to its fullest. And so 
you know, one time I, I talked to a military general who had studied this kind of stuff in a way. And he said, some people experience post-traumatic stress, what is typically thought of as post-traumatic stress, which in my understanding, that's kind of the negative side effects like nightmares and, you know, alcoholism and, you know, like you have a hard time functioning in life and some people experience post-traumatic growth. And, um, I think I'm probably more in the latter because in, in some ways before Kyrgyzstan, I wasn't, I wasn't a, like an overly driven person. I was like a good climber cause I had great access to it because of my dad. And I had been on these big experiences, but I wasn't, I wasn't super driven. And after Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan, I was like really driven and maybe it was a bit angsty, but I would say it was more just like this, this, this like pretty positive need to like suck the marrow out of life, you know, like experience it to its fullest. And I think that served me really well ever since. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I think that's, um, that's exactly right. And it, it's just interesting to dwell on the, on the idea of trying to create those experiences for your kids in order to armor them with the tools that they need to weather, whatever those storms are. And let's hope that they don't, your kids don't get kidnapped by uh, extre- Muslim Islam extremists in uh, Kyrgyzstan at any point in their lives. But um, if they do, you know, you hope that what you've provided them with the tools to be, you know, psychologically stable humans who, who can kind of overcome those really dire moments. That's what you want to go for. But um, it sounds like you're, you're kind of just trying to be a little bit softer than your father in some sense. You're trying to find maybe more of a balance with, with your own style, with how you raise your kids. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to look at your kids' personalities a lot. Um, Like my sister, my parents tried to raise her in a similar way and she rebelled and totally didn't want to be part of the outdoors or adventure in any way. And I did think one of these that worked so well with my dad's parenting style and myself is just because our personalities really merged really well in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, my kids are a little bit different, but I, I mean, the way that we approach it is we try and bring them on adventures all the time. Like we try and bring them, you know, we're in Fontainebleau now we spend all day outside. We take them skiing. I mean, we, we are constantly out there. And my thinking is that at this age, that needs to be just as fun as possible because they want need want it to be fun and you want to build confidence in them. Right? right. Like you want them to feel capable and like they can go out and experience this stuff. So, um, so that then that kind of like builds confidence over time so they can show it to their friends, but it's not about like beating them up in my mind at this point. Um, but I do think Fitz, at least he's nine now is approaching an age, maybe a few more years a few years away where he will be able to like conceptualize type two fun. He'll be able to understand that going out and um, having these big adventures is, is not just a miserable thing that actually has, you know, you can tell stories about it. It builds strength, it builds character, all these things. I think, I think that takes a little bit older mind to really be able to understand that. And so that's my, my thinking on it right now. Cool. Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions and then maybe we'll, we'll switch over to some of these uh, <clears throat> listener questions too. Um, I, w- I was, again, we, you know, I went back through the push and um, it kind of re uh, 
it sort of re kind of introduced me to how um extraordinary that climb was on the Don Wall. Um and what, you know, you're just talking about, you know, these these type two fun things that you had when you were a kid. And then, you know, just the idea that after 16 and 17 days on a wall that I just, you know, you're talking about how when you had all those pitches done and it, it was like this relatively easy escape to the top for you, you know, when it was like kind of over for you, but you hadn't actually topped out. You know, I look at those last pitches and it's like, it's super hard. It's not easy climbing still. I mean, it is for you, but it's just an extraordinary thing to think that you were sitting up there for that long and like so roach and you were like, oh yeah, well, I got this in the bag. And you did, and you weren't wrong about that. Um, but um, what I wanted to get at was the Dawn Wall's kind of legacy. And it's, I think it's changing even as, even, you know, that it's only been a few years, but it seems like from when it happened to now, um, what your thoughts are, you know, there was a, there was a strong attempt on it this last year um, by uh, Seb Van He and, and uh, Seba Van He and, and Seb Burt, uh, but they, they, they got their asses kicked. Um, it has been done by Adam Andra, but you know, it's like, I don't really see it. It didn't spawn like a, a extraordinary amount of exploration on El Cap, you know, like I don't know it's kind of like uh Lynn's, you know, freeing the nose didn't really suddenly spawn this, this wave of people wanting to free climb El Cap for quite a few years. Um, so I was kind of wondering what you think of the legacy of it is in your book. You talked about how early on you thought it would just be something you would give to a future generation. Cause you wouldn't be able to do it. Um, you know, on day on year two or three. Um, so can you like conceptualize maybe your ideas of what the future is for that kind of free climbing on El Cap and maybe, you know, where the Dawn wall sits now and, and that free climbing legacy. Um, I, my guess is that it just is going to take a bunch of years to catch up. Like, I feel like when I climbed flex Luther, for instance, like, no, you know, it just took a long time before anybody else was interested, but then people got interested and they're like, this is actually kind of rad. When I was first climbing on El Cap, it was a little bit the same. I, you know, I would climb like the Salathe wall and I'd be the only one free climbing that whole season on El Cap. And I'd get to the top and I'm like, like free climbing El Cap is the most badass experience imaginable for climbing. Like, why isn't anybody else here? Like, it's so, it's just so awesome. And, um, and I've thought that a lot. And now, you know, 20 years later, there are more people there um, and they're experiencing it. And I think people do think that now. And so I think the Don Wall is going to be the same way, probably. I mean, Adam Andre was just a total outlier. Like he's he's just an exception to the rule on pretty much anything. And the fact that he can come out and just do it in, you know, a month or whatever. And um, without having ha hardly ever placed gear, that still blows my mind. That still kind of stings. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, it's funny. Like even even just yesterday, I was climbing on this, you know, eight A plus boulder problem here in Fontainebleau, and I was top roping it because it's like this super high, scary thing. And um, I actually came to Fontainebleau being like, "Well, I never wanted to top the top rope this thing because I feel light duty if I do." But now that I got an Achilles injury, I will. <laughs> um, but then somebody came up and they're like, "You know, Adam Andra flashed this thing." And I'm like, man, every single crag I go to in Europe, if you find somebody who knows the history, they always, and they tell it to you, they're always like, okay, here's the history of this route was put up by Beat Camerlander in 1862. And then they're like, and then Adam Andra came. And the history is that way in every single crag in Europe. It's 
pretty amazing. <laughs> and so, anyways, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Adam Andra. Uh, um, but besides Adam, I feel you know like he did the will wall. probably do. The wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy Tommy Caldwell put it up, but then. You won't believe this, but then Adam Andre came and sent it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but I think it will get done. I mean, one thing that I'm like, I'm I'm very proud of the Don Wall. Like, it, it, I think it's I think it's awesome, Rude. I think it's hard. It's it's proud, and I think people for a long time, like people who were good big wall climbers, there's this dirty little secret out there where a 513 on a big wall is actually probably more like, you know, 12C or something. It's just like always, like if you know how to climb high off the ground and you're good at that stuff, big walls are just a little bit easier. And um, there, but there's a few that aren't. And so I think there was a bit of a target on the Don wall because people who were like, you know, upper 514 climbers, they're like, oh, he rated it you know, 13 D, but that probably means it's or 14 D, but that probably means it's like 14 B and they're going up there and they're like, Oh no, this is actually, you know, pretty hard. And so I think it will stand the test of time. Everybody's blown away by the logistical difficulties of it. It's just like a mind boggling puzzle to put together. Um, it's funny. I talked to Nolly one time, Nolly Huck Tyvel tried it for a season at one point. And he's like, right. it's, yeah, he's like, it's such a crazy thing. Cause he's like, you're you're at like one you're like at one point of the wall he's like he's, he's like imagine if you're on one side of the street and you wanted to get to the other side of the street and then you realized it was going to take four hours to get there he's like that's what the don wall feels like to me <laughs> <laughs> that's a great analogy <laughs> so what about like just the idea of that level of exploration um you know again like whether it's the Donwall or not, or whether it's the next thing, um, it's just was that also seemed like an outlier, obviously what you did. I mean, it was seven years, but, um, and I think you were also, you know, uniquely qualified to go up there and to be piecing that puzzle together, being, uh, you know, the most experienced big wall free climber, um, at the time and maybe still, um, but do you, do you, I mean, do you feel like there's an opportunity out there for some, somebody who's uh you know in the pain cave like you were when you first started that thing to go out and quest and find these kind of roots or was this just a magic uh puzzle that you happen to find do you think there's more sort of of these kind of piecing together serious hard climbs to be found on el cap i think there's more for sure um I mean, I'm just in this place in my head right now, coming to a place like Fontainebleau, where there's been people bouldering here for a really long time. Like if you just take a boulder and you look at it and people climb to the obvious lines and they kind of had this one vision in their head at first and they thought all the blunter rats and stuff were completely just holdless and unclimbable. And then people come out, come out here with a little bit more of a modern more modern view and they realize you can climb things differently and then they make little variants and it becomes like the spider web of different problems on all the good boulders. I think El Cap has done that in certain ways and it's going to continue to do that. I mean, um, I don't know if the climbing will get drastically harder, like the hardest moves won't probably be bypassed, but people will figure out creative ways to turn it into newness. Like El Cap always reinvents itself. 
What about style with the uh, the Donwall in particular? I want to I want to talk about uh, some of the activism, the activism bender you've been on, Tommy. But just real, I'm just curious about the style of the Donwall. Where do you see improvements uh, coming around that, if at all? Yeah, I mean, our style wasn't wasn't that great, honestly. Like we we wrap bolted it in certain places. We wrapped in a ton. We just worked the moves. We just got to the places as easily as, as we could. And um, it seems like right now the European style is to ground up things, but it's really not that much different on something like the Donwall when you ground up it because they still bring fixed ropes and they aid climb up the pitches and they get to the top and then they kind of work them the same way that we did. And you know, once it, once it's like a couple week long project, it's you know not that much different to wrap in from the bottom or come up from the or wrap in from the top or come up from the bottom. Um, but the uh, you know like the ascent where you where you where you just don't fix ropes like that would be an incredible improvement in style we also had um you know we we're making a film so we had sort of like an endless supply of gear if we wanted it like there was people going up recharging batteries going up and down our fixed ropes we could have stayed up there as long as we wanted to craft services yeah <laughs> yeah craft services um that's uh, certainly a, a style improvement that could that could <laughs> be done um so there's, yeah, there's tons of room for improvement. There's also the Donwall, like the, the, there's the variation of the Donwall that somebody should do that will be like the King line. They climb the Donwall to Wino Towers where it really ends. And then they finish up passage, passage to freedom up to the top. That, that'll be like the, the mega King line El Cap route. Nice. I think Adam Andre already did it though, but. Um, <laughs> just it's just coming in on the ticker right here. <laughs> so tell us, um, you've been on an activism bender. So um, you know, I guess let me set some context here. There's a there's a point years ago where the sight of you know dirtbag climbers in suits and ties on walking around Capitol Hill and you know rubbing elbows with um, our political elite would kind of shock me and now it seems like that's happening more frequently and you, you've certainly been part of that cohort of you know people who are lending your you know reputation and and you know notoriety in the climbing world to causes uh political causes so what's what's your thinking about like just using you know you who you are your professional athlete status to um speak to some of these causes what are those causes you're really working on right now and um yeah let's just talk about your the bender you've been on the last couple of weeks yeah so i mean climbing has really changed a lot over the years obviously and we're at a point where like you know there's people like me professional climbers who have the resources and sort of like the fame to utilize it like in in ways like it seems like a shame. It seemed like a waste if you didn't actually do something like that. It seemed pretty selfish. And so there's all these organizations that we all know of in climbing um, or in the outdoor world in general, like the Access Fund and Protect Our Winters and the Wilderness Society. And they're creating infrastructure for motivated outdoor enthusiasts to actually make a difference in policy. And they figured out, you know, 10 or, 10 or so years ago that if you bring, you know, sort of quote unquote famous people to Capitol Hill and you put them in suits, um, the lobbying just goes way better. Like you have cooler stories to talk about. You actually make it into the room with the, 
um, you know, with, with the higher level politicians instead of just the staffers sometimes. And, um, and they'll listen. So I got swooped into that through the American Alpine club and the access fund. They used to run this event called climb the hill. And I started lobbying and I hated it. Honestly, I was like, this feels so weird. I, I really don't like it. Um, but it did feel effective. And so I came back and I, I came back enough times that I started to actually kind of like it. And I started to feel like uh, it was making a difference. And so for me, that put me down this whole very unexpected like road in my life. And these days I would say my activism work, you know, almost dominates as much time as my climbing does. Um, especially why I was injured. That was one thing that I was really excited to get more to go deeper on while I could when I was injured. And so I've worked on a, a lot of issues and it's taken very many turns and I'm always trying to figure out ways to get climbers excited about environmental activism and land protection. And sometimes it totally fails and sometimes it works. Um, it takes all these different forms. Sometimes it's just like going to Washington, DC. Other times it's just going on awesome expeditions and having, having a really doing a really cool climb, but then telling a story like I normally would, you know, I wrote tons of stories about those with you, Andrew, <laughs> in the past, but now we tell it with a little bit of an activism slant. We're bringing awareness to an area that needs protection. And so I did a trip to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in that vein. I've done a trip to Bears Ears and then Oak Flat. And um, yeah, and I, I would say these days I'm going to DC like, I don't know, four or five times a year. Um, I'm doing like a trip or two to a cool place that needs protection. Um, and it's been, it's been getting progressively cooler. It's like the flywheel is beginning to spin a little bit. At first I would just do these trips and post about them on social media and figure that was all the storytelling that needed to happen. And I'll tell you that it, it seems like when you post, um, you know, like if I post on social media about, um, you know, like a cool climbing, like, a, like even me doing like a hangboard exercise or something that just is climbing stoke related. A lot of people seem to interact with it and get psyched get a lot of likes and hits and all that kind of stuff. Um, if I post about my family, I get, you know, 10% less. Um, if I post about activism, I get like 10% of what I get for climbing stuff. Like people just don't really seem that interested for the most part, mm -hmm. unless I make it really fiery. Like if I, you know, start slandering trump or something then you get a bunch of um action um but i don't love doing that but this last this last or a couple of weeks ago i had a, a really cool week should i just lay it out there yeah the please week? yeah okay <laughs> so i started the week at this um this event put on by aspen the aspen institute which i'm sure you guys know about um called the um aspen ideas conference it's in, my, in miami florida and i ended up at this you know i did a i did a like the opening night presentation there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of politicians a whole bunch of scientists and then me i was supposed to bring like a cool fact they didn't know that i'm like the most uncool climber but they said that they invited me so i could bring the cool factor to the night with politicians and scientists <laughs> <laughs> so i did my best um and so i got to hang out a little bit with um one of the reasons it was cool is because I got to hang out with, uh, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting his name suddenly. Anyways, he's the head of the conservative climate caucus, um, uh, congressman from Utah. 
and kind of, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how to make it so that conservative people want to save the planet. You know, it's like they should, they want to, I mean, they, they do want to, but it's just like the policy doesn't say that. And so hanging out with this guy kind of helped me start to understand how to talk to conservatives a little bit more um, mm -hmm. about that. Uh, John, uh, Curtis, um, Congressman Curtis is his name. And, um, and, and then I had a, a night where I hung out with all these super young activists at a party. And, um, and I realized at this party that um, these people are trying to like save the world, trying to do really cool stuff and they're young. And so they're pretty idealistic, but they have this like zest and this energy that reminded me of how I felt. And my friends felt when we were like on the cusp of, you know, changing climbing in ways where, you know, we we're like, we're going to figure out ways to climb big walls when nobody has done it or figure out ways to do harder, bolder problems. You know, people like Chris Schreimer are like, we're going to blow that last generation out of the water. And it gave us this energy and this excitement that was really cool. And I was like, these people are doing it about climate activism, which actually is going to have an impact. And they have that excitement and that zest. And so I just came out of that conference, like feeling pretty uplifted, and then I went straight into this series of events for um, for this issue that I've been working on kind of on and off for like 20 years. I was on the board of the Access Fund when I was quite young, like I was like, you know, 22 years old or something when I joined the board of the Access Fund. And I spent six years. And one of the main issues we were working on was the Oak Flat um, mine, which is where the Phoenix bouldering contest used to be. And um, and at the time we were trying to block the mine because we were saving the boulders. Like we were just looking at it that way. Like we don't want to lose the school bouldering area. So we don't want it to get mined. And they actually stopped the bouldering contest because they thought we had lost the battle. They thought the mine was inevitably going to happen. Um, but the activists got in there, not only climbers, but the tribes that, um, that sort of like their Holy land is there and um you know organizations like the wilderness society like a bunch of activists got in there and have like successfully stalled this thing out for basically the last 20 years but it's coming to a head again because the trump administration orchestrated a land swap essentially that mandated that the land be transferred to the mine and it just became law right like the mine was going to get it based on lobbying and it, it's it's a really interesting issue in my mind because there's it's one of the bigger known copper deposits in North America and we need copper to transition to a clean energy economy. You know, electric cars need copper, the infrastructure, the, the you know, power lines, we're going to need tons of power lines. Like, there's so many things that need copper. Um, but as I've dug into this issue more, I've realized that just like the mining laws and the water issues and the indigenous issues, like there's so many reasons why this mine just doesn't make sense. And it's got me pretty fired up about it. And so I did a lobbying trip with Patagonia and Native Outdoors to D.C. And we talked to a bunch of Congress people and it was pretty depressing um, to come away from that. And they're just like, no, this is law like this is probably going to happen. There's not much you can do about it. But they said the thing that you can do is influence the local politics um, like they will listen to people in Arizona. So we decided to put together these these show like these slideshows for climbers in Arizona. And so what I did just a couple of weeks ago after the climate conferences, I did three slideshows with native out. There was a whole bunch of people. It was native outdoors. It was um, this, this group of 
um, this ironic, interestingly, this Jesuit school um, called Brophy College, they have um, a bunch of native students, they have a Native American club that have become sort of the most badass grassroots advocates I know in a lot of ways. So we teamed up with them and then, um, so, and then Patagonia and um, the Arizona Mining Reform Coalition. And it was like this incredible collaboration of all these different people that came together to throw these events. And we did one in Tucson, one in Phoenix and one in Flagstaff. And we started with like this awesome music from this um, kind of activist musician guy. And then, um, and then the Brophy kids, we would get up there and talk about why they wanted this place protected. And then um, Len Nessifer gave like a doctoral dissertation about mining and, um, and the issue coming from, you know, he's actually, you know, he's got, he's an incredibly smart guy. And so people got really educated by him. And then I would get up there kind of briefly and relate it to climbers and what we can do. And it just ended up to be these kind of magical events in my mind, like people clean all the clean. They're well attended, which was awesome. I didn't know if that was even going to happen because we're just talking about protecting a place. But people, you know, people, turns out they want to they want to party. If you throw a party, people show up. Um, and so we threw these parties. People came. They got educated. We got, you know, tons of petitions signed. It felt um you know, it felt like we were making a difference. It was really cool. And then plus the whole group of people were having tons of fun together. It was like a little road trip. It was like a climbing road trip. We're driving all over Arizona, doing these events. We went climbing at Oak Flat. Um, yeah, and I was pretty fired up after all that. I was like, this is a way to make change. Um, and then we and then I topped off the week with the American Alpine Club annual dinner. Um which is a whole other can of worms that we can talk about if you guys want <laughs> or not. Well, I think we should uh, switch to the Q and a part of uh, the conversation and uh, maybe spend 30 minutes on that and then wrap this up. Um, so uh, Amy, why don't we just go from the top and uh, we can start with Connor if you're still online and you can come on and ask your question. And if you guys have questions, you can just jump in the Q and a and, you can either ask the question or just say, I have a question and we'll, we'll just kind of go down the list and, um, and see what we get. That's a whirlwind week too, Tommy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, we got sort of wrapped up while we're waiting for Connor, but, um, I mean, what, so, you know, it felt good. You think there's progress towards, towards, uh, the end result and stopping the mine or are we still, is it still a looming, looming monster? I th it's still a looming monster for sure. Right. Like the mind has the upper hand at this point, but there is building momentum. And I feel like the yeah. way that these places really do get protected is enough people get fired up about it, that the, that the politicians have to pay attention. I was going to say, thanks to uh, Chris and Andrew for putting this on, but I recently came across a video, uh, of Tommy and Jonathan Seegers climbing on the diamond. Uh, it was this old Epic TV video. And it featured a rescue. And so I was going to hear, see if he had more to that story and if there's any other cool stories from Long's Peak he wanted to share. Sure. Yeah. I can, I can talk about that a little bit, Connor. Um, yeah. I was, I was trying this route that Josh Wharton um, clued me into. It was a variation on the route I'd already done called the Dunn West Bay. So it was the Dunn West Bay Direct. And, um, you know, I was just, you know, hooking up with Jonathan Seacrest. He's you know, one of my good friends and we were going to go 
work on this awesome route. We'd actually kind of worked it out. We we're going to try and go send one day. And uh, we were at the base of the North chimney. Um, and there was just tons of people in there. It was like, you know, those who have climbed on the diamond, they know that the North chimney is probably the worst place in the park. And we were looking up there, you know, trying to figure out if we should try and go up there, if we should climb around, we kind of decided to climb around and then, um, and then something happened up there. Like somebody took a fall and I actually looked up and saw like this plume of snow, like kind of coming down the wall and, um, pretty quickly realized that somebody had fallen into the snow patch and, um, and then people were sc- screaming. And so we realized that there was something going on up there. And so Jonathan and I kind of soloed around to the side and got up to this incredible scene of like, like there was three parties and about, you know, and plus us, so eight people in total, all kind of with their ropes intertwined in each other, looking at this guy who had gotten hit by a rock, probably knocked off from somebody above and had fallen about 50 feet and um, landed in the snow patch. But and along the way, they had gotten pretty hurt. Like their ear was mostly ripped off, but they're in shock. And so the first thing I thought was maybe I can just like strap, you know, take all these ropes that we have and fix ropes to the ground and just strap this guy to me and, and wrap to the ground. But then we realized that he had a lot of like neck and upper back pain. So we got pretty nervous about that. And it just started this, this crazy rescue. It ended up taking eight hours. We, you know, Jonathan ran out and got cell phone service because he couldn't get cell phone service from up there. And they sent somebody to run up the trail and unlock the cabin. And I've been involved in around rescues in Yosemite quite a bit. And usually they tell the climbers not to get involved in them, but in Rocky mountain, in this case, it was like very dire. And so they unlocked the cabin and just like handed us a gurney and like oxygen bottles and this giant first aid kit, this evac bag. And they're just like, get it all up there. And then Rangers came around and like, there's Rangers on the other side of lungs, people that wrapped in from above. And it just, anyways, it just started this like eight hour rescue where we got this guy in a gurney up there um at one point the ranger just like handed me a diagram and they're like build an anchor like this <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know with all these weird you know several different belay devices the lower multiple people and, <laughs> and all of a sudden i just became the rigger for all that stuff but anyways we got this guy packaged up we dropped we dropped an oxygen oxygen bottle down the north chimney at one point i wondered if it was going to explode they don't they just <laughs> they just fall um but we got wow, him in there and got him, yeah we got him down to the glacier right as it was getting dark he was you know he started out pretty you know pretty aware of things and then he progressively just like you know got worse and worse throughout the day and actually by the time we got him in the helicopter he's getting combative which is really bad when you got a broken spine and um and it's usually one of the last stages before you die and so luckily we got him in the helicopter and they flew him out and saved his life. So it was, a, it was a pretty crazy experience. That's an amazing story. Geez. Um, leave it to the riggers to have the most complicated diagram <laughs> too, <laughs> For, like just repelling down a cliff. <laughs> you know, Tommy's rig, like four, <laughs> Four ledges side by side on an anchor. So, I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about complicated anchors, like, you know, cameramen, fixed lines, all that shit. It's like, yeah, you, you're pretty ready to do these gigantic anchors, probably. Oh, I always man. talked about how moving a body around, it's like moving a pig around that you can't lift, you know, on a wall. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. I was, yeah, I felt 
I actually feel really good at moving pigs around on walls and setting up crazy rigging things. I've done so much of it in my life. We did a lot for the filming of the Don. You know how a lot of the crux pitches of the Don wall look like they're filmed from like a helicopter or something, but you can't have a helicopters or drones in Yosemite. That was all done with rigging. Like we figured out how to get a cameraman like 50 feet out from the wall on the Don wall. And that was all, you know, rigging craziness that I, that I conceived. All right, next we have Dan. So Dan, if you can unmute yourself or ask your question, you're up. Yeah, hi. For someone who's looking to climb a big wall and sleep in a portal ledge for the first time, what tips would you offer? Uh, looking to climb a portal? Um, well, just know it's going to suck basically <laughs> your first time at the wall. It's like, it's like having a job. It's really like construction work for anyone. Everything is so awkward. Like one of the best uh, quotes I've heard of, I, uh, um, on El Cap is somebody is like, I've never experienced something that's so simultaneously terrifying and boring. Um, and that's what big wall climbing is for most people at first. Um I would say these days, if you have good free climbing skills, utilize those as much as possible. Like that gets you around a lot of it. Like if you can take a small rack and run up pitches pretty quickly and then struggle with all the rest of it, it's so much better than just standing in eighters all the time. Um, and it really is type two fun. Like it's, it's going to suck, but if you make it to the top, you're going to be so psyched. And only I would say 30% of the people that start up their first elk cap root made it to the top the fail 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 failure rate is quite large and that's mostly just because of the awkwardness and the labor that is involved um all that stuff gets diminished quickly the more times you climb El cap by your first time it's there's just no way around it yeah i'd add that you double whatever time you think it's going to take you to do anything um uh, i mean from <laughs> from the climbing to the pooping you know like it takes it's just awkward and a pain in the ass so <clears throat> thanks dan um next up we have uh noah if you're there noah you can chime in chris chris andrew long time listener first time caller <laughs> um so tommy seems like you have a lot on your plate these days any tips for keeping yourself grounded and in the moment in your day to day? Ooh. Uh, I don't know. I can't say, I don't know if I'm successfully grounded or, or in the moment. I think my wife would definitely say I'm oftentimes not in the moment. So I'm, I'm still working on that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I do think that the, that, living a life of like expeditions and just dealing with a lot of um, logistics and, you know, things going wrong and stress has actually prepared me pretty well for the life I live now. Um, so, you know, it just feels like a constant expedition nowadays, which is both exciting and hard. But right now can it I, feels more exciting. like right now I'm I, in a moment. Uh, like, I'm like, everything's going great. I'm super psyched. I frame Noah's question a little bit in that um, I think you're seen by the climbing community as sort of like a down to earth, not full of yourself sort of cat. And um, so I was kind of just maybe frame it in terms of like, 
is that from your upbringing? Um, is it something you think about sort of keeping yourself humble? Um, you know, having humility around the things that you do. I think it is in my upbringing a little bit. Um, it's also that I was sort of naturally like incredibly introverted and awkward and shy. And so that doesn't lend itself to bravado in the long run. Um, I started out in a good place to stay relatively grounded, I suppose. Yeah, there's a wonderful third grade or whatever picture in uh in your book um that 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 definitely speaks to your your sort of younger years as an awkward little kid and i actually uh i actually knew you back then too um yeah as, as a little kid so it's awesome yeah cool um ian if you're next in the queue you can uh ask your question yeah i'm not sure if uh if this one's been asked yet, and maybe uh, Kalus can take over, but tell me, I was wondering about pitch 19 on the Salpe wall and, uh, you know, maybe Chris can give you the background of his investigation here. <laughs> I mean, I do know this is one of the most, uh, you know, like reoccurring topics <laughs> for you, Chris, to talk about <laughs> in all your various forms of media. Is that right? Yeah, I, was, I kind of know your answer, but let, I, this will go into the archives now of, of my, uh, You'll go on the big board with my yarn and stuff. I'll put your, a picture of Tommy Caldwell up there. Um, so, <laughs> so in your, you're curious about like my personal thoughts and opinions on the 19th pitch. Did you climb it too? I think right. Uh, I haven't climbed it. The first time I tried to climb the South Bay way back in the day was before the monster off with had been discovered. So I tried it and got completely shut down, and that you know led to me not being successful that time. Um, I've since gone back and top roped it um just for fun but uh i think i might go there's a chance i'll try and do it this fall because i think honold really wants to do kind of like the most badass um version of the south a wall that you can do where you do the 19th pitch and you do the teflon corner and then you climb it ledge to ledge um you know like i said one of those things on lcap where people find slightly variations of new things to do to make it a little bit cooler I don't know if anybody's done all three of those things. Probably. Maybe, maybe Connor actually did that, right? Nope. I don't think so. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is this has been a recurring topic on this show, but it's it's kind of interesting to just consider. I mean, I, I guess another way to ask this is I mean, you know, this uh this pitch is one of the hardest pitches on the Salafe wall, as you know. And um it was kind of just lost and forgotten to history. And so I don't know if you could uh, draw an analogy to one of your own roots on El Cap. How would you feel if there's like a variation that, you know, some young gun finds 20 years from now that skirts the, you know, one of the tougher or more scary or whatever the adjective is pitches on, on the route. And then that's called the new Dawn wall or the new, you know, magic mushroom or something. Um, do you feel yeah. like that's, that's part of the evolution of climbing or would you kind of get your hackles up and, and call that person out for not doing the, the real like thing? It's like a five, seven way around the traverse on the, on the Dawn wall that you guys didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would probably like gently nudge them, give them a hard time, but not like dwell on it too much. Um, it was funny one time when Alex and I were climbing, the nose when we were speed climbing the nose like over and over again trying to break the two hour mark on that um connor herson was working on it 
and Alex, we, and we met them on the East Ledges descent one time, like they were coming up, we were coming down, Jim and Connor, and we stopped and Alex was like, oh no, I want to do the no someday. And I'm just going to go around the um, changing corners because there actually is a way around the changing corners, believe it or not. And, and Connor like guilt, I mean, this, Connor was like tiny at the time, you know, he's 15 years old or whatever, just this little kid giving Alex so much, so much crap for taking the easy way out of the nose. And so I think Alex has never done it. Cause he's like, I just can't bring myself to, <laughs> to just do it the light du- duty way after, you know, people like Connor, and, you know, a lot of great climbers have, have kind of bucked up and made it happen even they even though they knew uh an easier way existed my sense is on the dawn wall if that happened people would probably stick with the original way mostly i don't know the 19th pitch was a weird one well we've got so many episodes on it we're not going we're not going to spend <laughs> any more time on that oh, we're doing another 45 on on pitch 19 that's the end of the show <laughs> <laughs> all right we got uh ben up next hey guys uh this is pretty awesome glad you're putting it on uh tommy i'm curious if you took the time to watch the the climb chris sharma's tv show and if you did um what were your thoughts on it did you enjoy it did you wish they went about it differently did you think that the competition didn't really fit the style of the tv show and stuff yeah what are your thoughts yeah i mean interestingly i watched the uh the finale episode sitting right next to Chris and Andrew. Um, That's right. <laughs> which is cool. I went to the party at the Boulder theater when they showed the finale. Um, but I was into it, honestly, like I've been involved in casting for reality climbing TV shows a few times um, that never work out. And the reason has that they don't work out has always been the same like climbers just aren't dramatic enough like we just get along too well and so i was a little afraid that that show which was you know conceived by good friends and you know i want you know they're, they're like the people who were involved in putting it together like i know all those people i want you know when stuff like this happens i just want it to be good like i don't want it to be a disaster and um and i was i, I think it was good like I mean, there's certainly things that were a little bit eye rolling and cringy, but that's TV. And I was so glad that they didn't overdo the drama. Like they didn't force it that much at all. Like it was a total love fest. And I think it's, I mean, in my opinion, it still worked, even though it wasn't typical reality TV show drama. And, and so, um, you know, and I, I love, I love Chris. I love Megan. Like, I don't know. I think it was kind of an exciting thing for all of them. And and it also kind of showed the the angst that you get in trying to send hard roots. I thought I thought that came through. Um yeah, so the most I mean I'm a I'm a pretty bad critic though, honestly, with this kind of stuff, but I, I thought I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, as you mentioned, Tommy, we were sitting right next to each other, and that was my comment was I wish the show had more drama and that people were like less psychologically healthy and, you know, were at each other's throats. And you're like, really? That's the thing I like most about the show. And I, I was uh, instantly shamed into feeling like a terrible human uh, with no moral center. Um, yeah, well, maybe they'll maybe they'll do another one and make it a total disaster with human drama and I'll like it more. Who knows? Yeah, maybe I could be the host. Um <laughs> All right, next we have Brian. Um, hi, Tommy. Uh, really surreal to talk to you. Um, 
So a quick question for you. You know, I'm a new climber and I'm um, just been learning about the sport. I'm watching Don Wall and reading books. I'm at a lot of the book on Sturatore. And so I'm just curious to know, like, if you have thoughts on how climbing entering the mainstream has had changes on the culture, how has it affected good or bad? Because um, obviously it's really different now learning about the sport relative to when you started climbing. So just curious about your thoughts. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's definitely altered it a fair amount. Um, I feel like as a whole, climbers are much more functional nowadays than they used to be and therefore slightly less colorful. Like I miss the days where like, you know, people were punching each other in the face a little bit. Um, but Wait, that's how happy. you learned the love fest. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, just contradicted your last question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but I do, I do have fond memories of those old days in Yosemite where, you know, like Dean Potter was like just trying to get the Rangers as riled up as possible. And um, we always felt like we were kind of running from the law. It was sort of fun in some ways. But on the other hand, um, it is pretty cool to have all the incredible opportunity and feel like we can actually make change beyond climbing. And um, for the most part, I feel like climbing is a healthy thing. That's like kind of good for the world. Like even in my environmental work, I, you know, I think that we need to keep climbers like caring about the blade, like climbers are going to know, know the world in a, in a really good way and therefore want to protect it more. There's a great history of that. And so I think it coming into the mainstream has made that more possible. Um, all right, let's answer Amy's question. Amy, who's a, a friend on social media, and I'm excited to uh, hear her question. And um, we actually need to interview her because I find her story so interesting, but we, we don't have to get there. Um, but Amy, why don't you jump in and ask your question? Yeah, um, I'm a big trail runner and climber, obviously, on, on this uh, Zoom interview. Are you and Alex going to do any more type two fun endurance pushes like you did with Continental Divide Link Up? And if you do, do you think you're going to be able to convince Adam to join again? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, uh, we got one in the works, which I probably won't talk too much about. But um, yeah, we got a mega one that we're start, super psyched about. Um, do you want to say hi, Ingrid? No. <laughs> Please. Ingrid just showed up. Just, just, just stand up and say hi for a second. They want to see you. Here's, here's Ingrid. Hi, Ingrid. Hi, Ingrid. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in her bedroom, so you know it's like nine twelve now. So she's going to her bed pretty soon. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're always. I mean, I think as I'm getting older and slightly less powerful, but better at suffering, I think that I'll veer more and more towards those you know, mega endurance link ups and trying to get creative in that way. Um, and Adam, actually this thing that I've got planned this summer, <laughs> once again, I kind of, I invited Adam to join me and then Alex got psyched and kicked Adam off the team. So it's happening over and over again. Um, all right, let's, uh, go to Nicholas. All right. Ingrid, are you having fun in France? Yeah. Yeah. Ingrid, like, Ingrid had a break, breakthrough today. She discovered barefoot bouldering. Ooh, awesome. She did. Yeah, we did a circuit. You did like 25 boulder problems today barefoot. How are your feet doing? Yeah, they look pretty good. 
It's quite the barefoot boulder. It's fun. Um, Aaron, if uh, it sounds like Aaron's mic is messed up, but um, we can go to uh, someone else, Nicholas, if you're there, or we could go to Cry Crap Me. Wonder if it's on our end. I don't think so. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Sorry. Uh, this question pretty much only pertains to Chris, but uh, oh. <laughs> years ago, you attended the Michigan Ice Fest. And I remember you had an enormous cast episode where you said, yeah, it was great. Uh, I think one thing they're missing is like a after party on the last night. So they actually do it every year now. And it's called the Chris Caloose dance party. Uh, just wondering if you're ever going to attend. There has been some talk of me returning to the Michigan Ice Fest. And I did. I did. Actually, my lawyers right now um, are working on the whole on um the fact that they they named that party after me without my permission um so <laughs> bill's yeah it's all it's all going down right now bill's about to receive his p- subpoena for that but um yeah no i've gotten endless amounts of crap for that <laughs> for for point i i didn't say like they didn't have a party i just it didn't like i ex- i expected more oomph from it but um but yeah i actually would like to come back i'm you know that's where i'm from my my peoples are from northern wisconsin anyway right right below the the up so um yeah we we could probably do that uh get back over there so um did we did we hang out i can't i don't know uh me no i, I go okay. i mean i think my first year was the year after that so i okay, saw cool. that i saw that there's a chris clues dance party so i was thinking oh sweet he's gonna be there hosting it well i know that's been the problem <laughs> is people have been disappointed that um i'm not actually there which i think they would be disappointed if i was there too so it's it's kind of a wash um so so anyhow but yeah thanks thanks for the invite back let's uh, see what bill will do about that all right i think we got time for one more question before um ingrid has to go to sleep to go to bed (laughs) um so maybe connor if you want to come back in and um we can and you can be our last questioner um would you ever consider putting up a new free route on half dome well, Connor, um, oh, wait, are you asking Tommy? <laughs> no, all of you guys. Okay. <laughs> I'd consider uh, it and then I'd say, nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I don't know. I mean, you know, the only existing free route on uh, Half Dome uh, is now the direct Northwest face because the regular Northwest face fell off and uh and i've done that one um but it'd be cool for somebody to really really look around and see if they could figure out an easier way to like replace the direct because it really is kind of a bummer right now um see if there was a way to go way left or something around it i'd certainly be interested in that um but i feel like that's probably a better a better mission for somebody uh a little bit younger and um you know psyched to do a public service project up there that question was just to build on that question. I mean, what is it like? I I know that rocks a more friable up there. Um, sort of lends itself to the hard aid climbing. Is that is is that your experience too, or is it just a matter of people not looking yet? Um, for the right for free climbing potential. I mean, I don't know honestly. I mean, sometimes you have to get up on. I haven't looked at it nearly as close as I have on El Cap. 
Um, the right side of Half Dome is pretty friable. It doesn't have like continuous crack systems. Um, you know, maybe there's something there though. I think right. it would be a little bit more in the vein of like the North American wall or something where you'd be linking together face holds and face features. And um, it would take a lot of work to make something work up there. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't rule it out though. I mean, it's interesting. Yosemite is, you know, people have been climbing there for so long and there's been so much happening, but there's still so much possibility there. Well, thank you, Tommy. And uh, thank you, Ingrid, for letting your dad uh, use your bedroom for the evening to uh, talk about climbing. Um, yeah. And thanks to everyone who, who tuned in. Um, hope we get to do more of these. This was fun. And uh, yeah, thanks for everything. Yeah, thank, thank you guys. And thanks to all the, all the listeners asking questions. That was fun. What's the best way to uh, groove on your activism? Is it just simply your social media? Yeah, probably my social media is the best way to get um, kind of like the lowdown on everything that's going on. Um, but, you know, also the, the Patagonia Climb Instagram channel is, you know, I'm, a, like a, I'm an employee of Patagonia these days. I'm like an activist. Um, for them and so that channel you should follow that as well so <laughs> for people who who can't who can't see what we're seeing right now ingrid has her whole fist in her mouth higher fist in her mouth <laughs> that's an impressive Where? trick i don't i'm sure i could not do that yeah not even close that's not even close <laughs> awesome. she knew i was getting a little dull she's like i gotta join and put my put my fist in my mouth <laughs> it's a perfect ending it's a perfect ending it's only ending everyone put your fists in your mouth the run out could use some of that <laughs> awesome all right thank you all right uh, thank you all right good night, see you, Tommy. Yeah. good night You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. no patreon.com slash runoutpodcast yes <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com <laughs> no dot, dot com slash runoutpodcast something like that give us some money